Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Danger from Within. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Seeing the Big Picture. We've all heard the saying, he can't see the forest for the trees. And that usually means that a person is so lost in the details of something, well, that he or she has lost any sense of perspective. I mean, what are all those details about? I mean, what's the end goal? What are we trying to accomplish? How we know if we've succeeded? When we can't see the forest for the trees, we've lost the big picture. And at that point, nothing makes sense anymore. We've been studying the book of 2 Peter, which, as we've seen, is a book about false teaching. Rather than give us the details of exactly what the false teachers taught, Peter gives us a picture of the moral character of the false teacher and what it is about them that appeals to so many people. And at the heart of Peter's debate has been the word sensuality. You know, often that word is applied, and rightly, to sexual desires and appetites, but as we have seen, Peter does mean that, but he also means more. The word can also refer to greed or to anything that a person desires for himself or herself. It means that the passions are excited. You know, false teachers, says Peter, are devoted to the lust of defiling passion, and because of that, they despise authority that is legitimate authority. You know, in essence, false teaching is the kind of teaching that focuses on what you want and what you might get and how to use your spirituality to get all you want. As one false teacher in our age has said, you can have your best life now. And of course, the obvious question raises its inconvenient head, doesn't it? If this is your best life right now, what do you think's waiting for you in eternity? I mean, it's not your best life. You're having that now. But as Peter pointed out that through their loud boasting, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. See, desire is inflamed. They can have their best life right now. No need to wait. No need to suffer. No need to pick up the cross and follow Jesus into his sufferings. In contrast, what the false teachers are teaching with what Peter has taught. Instead of exciting your passions, Peter has taught the moral requirements of Jesus. He's spoken about virtue of moral goodness, knowledge of God, self-control, the ability to hang in there in the long haul. Oh, he calls that perseverance and so forth. You know, it's a very different religion than that of the false teachers. And that gets me back to the image of not seeing the forest for the trees. The problem with acting out of your passions is that you lose perspective. That is, you lose the eternal perspective. You're getting stuff now, but what becomes of you in the long haul, in the big picture? And with that as an introduction, let's study our text. It's 2 Peter 3, 1 to 7. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I think it's easy to divide this paragraph into two sections. The first section is in verses 1 to 4. That's Peter's argument for taking a hard look at the forest, if you will. That's the big picture. And the second section of this paragraph, that's in verses 5 to 7, is Peter's argument as to why the big picture that he is presenting in this book, it really is the big picture. See, the false teachers want to argue against not just the big picture, but they want to argue that there's nothing to worry about here. So let's start with a big picture in verses 1 to 4. And we notice that Peter begins by saying, this is now the second letter that I'm writing you. Let me for a moment digress. See, liberal theologians love to point that this verse, they say, is evidence that Peter didn't write this letter. This is a fraud, and verse 1 is an attempt to pass it off as an original. Now, of course, that's a silly argument. Luke in Acts 1 begins his book by saying, in the first book. And then he tells us what he said in the book of Luke. And for my part, I know that I often begin my own teaching and refer to something that I may have said on a previous day. It's not a mark of a fraud. It's the mark of continuity. And furthermore, the real issue, as we will see, is that Peter refers to some things that, well, the liberals say didn't arise in early Christianity, not until at least a century later. They're referring to the appeal to apostolic authority. The real Peter, so they say, would never be referring to the authority of the apostles. That only developed later. And of course, that also betrays only what liberals wished were the case. I mean, read through Jesus, hear him, Matthew 16, speak of Peter as the rock of the church. Or hear him in John 14, 26, promise that the apostles would receive a special portion of the Holy Spirit that would give them a unique authority to remember and explain all that Jesus taught. In short, Jesus taught that the apostles and only the apostles would be his spokesmen. And when the church was formed, it was led by the apostles. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, which almost no one doubts was written by Paul. Paul says that the mark of an apostle is that they were personally trained by Jesus. So no, the liberals are imagining something that never happened. The idea that the apostles had authority over the whole church began with Jesus, and it isn't the product of later Christianity. Well, enough with my rabbit trail. Let's get back to the text. Peter reminds his readers that this is now his second letter to them, and that in both of his letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, he has wanted them to be a reminder that they should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and what Jesus instructed his church through, he says, your apostles. That is, the apostles are the heritage of the church. The apostles are to be regarded like the Old Testament prophets. They are of equal weight. They're both writing scripture. And of course, in terms of what Peter's teaching, he's referring specifically to the second coming of Jesus. Now notice verse two, that you should remember. The NRSV translates that as, I'm trying to arouse you or rise up, shake off the sleep. Remember, stimulate your thinking, draw on the things you've been taught that are available to you. Now, when it comes to the prophets or the words of the First Testament, what specifically does Peter have in mind? Well, no doubt he wants them to remember the prophetic teaching about the day of the Lord. You see, the day of the Lord is mentioned frequently in many places, and it's thought of as a most sobering day. For instance, Isaiah 13, verse 9, 
Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. That's what the First Testament taught. Or Joel 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? See, the day of the Lord refers to the end of the age, when God condemns the wicked and saves the righteous. In the New Testament, it's referring to the second coming of Jesus. And after that, the great judgment that commences, and with that, the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. So let's go on to verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, that's been misunderstood by some. See, I have heard more than one Bible teacher say, I mean, did you know that in the end times, right before Jesus comes, scoffers will come? But Peter, as well as the other apostles, have a very different understanding of what's meant by the last days than is being portrayed here. You know, for instance, go all the way back to 1 Peter 4, verse 7, and Peter says the end of all things is at hand right now. He said that 2,000 years ago. And he said that because with the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit being poured out and the beginning of the church and the advent of the church's mission being fulfilled, we are now, right now, in the last days and have been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. So when Peter says, in the last days, scoffers will come, he's meaning that during the era of the church, scoffers will come. That is the end times. And that's how Peter means it right here. In these days, scoffers will appear. And they're going to say, you know, people have been talking about the day of the Lord for hundreds of years, and nothing ever changes. Things carry on exactly as before. And for that reason, they say, There's no reason to practice the kind of virtues that the apostles talk about. I mean, they speak about self-denial. I mean, they speak about picking up your cross and following Jesus. They speak about self-control, and they warn about the coming judgment. But all that stuff never happens. And so say the false teachers, why not construct a different spirituality? A spirituality that feeds on the passions of the flesh and gives you whatever you desire. Want to be kept up to date on all the developments and behind the scenes of Back to the Bible Canada? Then be sure to sign up for our ministry update email. These monthly emails provide insights into what's new and what's forthcoming here at Back to the Bible Canada. Updates about the ministry's international efforts, new opportunities to share the good news spread around the globe. And you'll receive first word of exciting upcoming Bible resources, updates on upcoming events, things to celebrate, and exclusive five and five audio conversations between myself and a monthly guest, offering inside looks at the ministry and plans moving forward. To sign up to receive the monthly ministry update email, visit us at backtothebible.ca or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. reading Peter's words very interesting. Where is he coming, say the scoffers? In many ways, scoffing is not new. You know, in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 17 verse 5, we find that Jeremiah's critics said, where is the word of the Lord? 
Malachi's day in Malachi 2.17, critics said, Where is the God of justice? Psalm 79 verse 10, as the nations were attacking Israel, they said, Where is their God? Or consider Ezekiel 12.22, when the people were mocking the idea that God would send the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, they said, it's recorded in Ezekiel 12.22, the days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Relax, they said. Keep on disobeying God. Nothing bad ever happens. All those warnings are just intended to intimidate. Nothing to fear here. And so the critics in Peter's day were saying, if Christ is not coming back to judge the world, then there is no future judgment. But Peter mentions the fathers who have died. So who are they? Well, notice again that he says, ever since the fathers died or have fallen asleep, so they must be the Old Testament patriarchs. Ever since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died, there has been no day of the Lord, and so it would be crazy to think that it is at hand. Oh, wow. What's the response to that? How does one counter that? I know that in our day, we might think that the answer has to be that we talk about how some of today's contemporary events are filling up Bible prophecy. But I think that's the wrong approach, and it's certainly not the approach that Peter uses here. But before we hear Peter's answer, let's stop for a moment and think how many people today are convinced that the great day of judgment is not at hand at all. You know, in a secular environment, the idea that we'll one day need to give an account of ourselves before God, that's not even considered. And interestingly enough, it's not frequently the topic of conversation in many Christian circles either. So what does one say? Notice Peter gives three arguments. Here's the first. It's in verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word. So Peter's refuting the idea that God doesn't intervene into the world. And the argument goes something like this. Look, you scoffers are claiming nothing ever changes, that everything goes on as before. You say there's a continuity in the world in which the things that follow other things happen is a simple matter of cause and effect. There are no major breaks. But, says Peter, you're deliberately overlooking something, aren't you? By saying it's deliberate, he means to say the evidence is right before you. You've chosen to look away. See, the very fact of creation is evidence of a major break. Whenever we speak of creation, look, we speak of something that was brought into being. You see, God brought something into being where once there had been only nothing. In short, that means God intervened. And when he did, nothing was the same. So stop and do a little assignment, would you? You As you're listening to me right now, where are you? Are you outside? You have access to a window. Look, Look around at what you see. There was once a time when everything that you are looking at now didn't exist. No trees, no rivers, no mountains, no great expanses on the earth, nothing. And then God spoke. And the universe came into being. And says Peter, that happened long ago. And then he says, the earth was formed out of water and through water. And I think what Peter is saying here is that even after the creation, for some period of time, the world was a watery chaos. Indeed, Genesis 1 verse 2 tells us the earth was formless and void. It was a howling wasteland. It was unfit for any life at all. So how long was it like that? Well, we're not told. 
And perhaps just like today, when the critics say, nothing ever changes, everything goes on as before. Well, perhaps within the providence of God, it carried on in this howling wasteland, maybe for millions of years. Truth is, we don't know. And then God spoke, and through his speech, he transformed the planet to be unlike every other planet by his word. Have a look at our planet and what it's become and ask yourself if you're really right in pretending that nothing ever changes. All things go on as before, for clearly the evidence from creation is that's not so. It's fascinating to think that today's scientists agree that the universe is not eternal. It had a point of beginning. And also interesting is that contrary to the view of evolutionary biology, that life, you know, they say gradually emerged as the first life form crawled out of the primordial ooze. Well, no such thing has ever been found in the geological table. Rather, what the evidence shows us is that life emerged not slowly, but quickly and suddenly. And the idea that all life forms go back to a single organism, well, that's not substantiated by the geological evidence either. Everything really doesn't go back to some, you know, root of, you know, one gigantic tree, but every life form simply emerges on its own. Yeah, something really did emerge, and the only explanation is God, or as Peter puts it, by the word of God. Don't you ever say everything goes on as before, when in order to say that, you've got to bury your head in the sand and never think about the origin of creation. Creation itself testifies that all things don't go on as before. Now, here's the second argument. It's in verse 6. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And Peter now moves to the second reason for believing in God's sudden intervention into the world. Yeah, it's true, says Peter, that at one point in time the world was in chaos and that God intervened and he separated the water from the water and actively fashioned the world the way that he did, not only to create life, but to create man, a being in his own image, the crown of his creation. But at another point in time, Far after the original creation that made life possible, the world again descended into the watery chaos from which it had emerged. Water was unleashed and that world was destroyed. And what do we learn from that? We learn that God has the power to create the world and he also has the power, might I add, the willingness also to destroy the world. The water returns, the chaos comes back. Now read the Genesis account to which Peter is speaking. That is Genesis 7 verse 11. We're told that the foundations of the great deep burst forth. The windows of the heavens were open. Water was pouring out from below and water was cascading down from above. And in short, the boundaries between land and water that God had set out were suddenly breached. Now, just as a side note, you know, interpreters differ as to whether the words by these refer to the water or to the word of God. I don't think it makes much of a difference. See, the point is that the world that was no longer was. The regular order of things upon which people were so sure would always continue didn't. And Peter now brings this to a point of conclusion, and that's in verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And so in this verse, let's consider four quick points. First, it's objectively true that God determines the boundaries of all creation, both when creation begins and how it ends. And we might add from the example of Noah that God also determines the kinds of upheavals and interruptions that will occur along the way. 
And all of that tells us that the idea that we need not worry, that everything is just going to work out as it always has, is simply false. Second Peter tells us that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Now, Peter doesn't tell us, you know, anything about the nature of the fire, only that fire now awaits this creation. Why not water as before? Well, because God made a promise to Noah that the human race would not be destroyed by water again. It will be destroyed by fire. And we also do know that there are a number of passages in the Old Testament that tell us about the fire at the end of our present history. Deuteronomy 32 verse 22 speaks about a fire that is kindled in God's anger and that it burns to the depths of Sheol and devours the earth, he says. Isaiah 30 verse 30 is quite graphic when it says, The Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and his descending blow will be seen and then in furious anger will come a flame of devouring fire. And Ezekiel 32 verse 22 speaks of God raining down hailstones of fire and sulfur. I mean, there are other First Testament texts about this as well. Now, Peter's third point is that the fire is reserved for the day of judgment. That is, God not only determines the day of creation, he also determines the day of cessation. You know, it used to be discussed among some as to how long eternity existed before the world came into being. Now, that's a philosophical question. I won't deal with that here, but I mean it only in this sense. Understand that eternal ages went by and then God created. God always acts on his timetable. So finally, number four, God reserves the day for the destruction of the ungodly, and it will come at God's timetable. That, says Peter, is the big picture. And if you lose that big picture, you'll forget what is accomplished through a godly life that is lived today. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that talking about the end days judgment is, is a good or a bad strategy for discussing our faith with non-Christians? Well, I think you and I know, Ben, that there are a number of people that say, you know, if that's what you believe, then I want nothing to do with that. I mean, you know, this God is judge over my life. But I think we can take what seems in some people's view to be a negative thing, and we could really speak about this in positive terms, that the God that we know is a God of justice. He doesn't allow simply crimes to be committed against his kingdom to, you know, to just carry on. I mean, no righteous state would allow that, and certainly our God does not. The, the scary thing is that we have to come to terms with the fact that not only do people sin, but so do we as well as individuals. So that's important. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Danger from Within, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future. 
So call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.